Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Riomar. Summer is here and there's no better time to get a new pair of summer shoes. Riomar makes wonderful shoes that perfectly bridge the gap of classy and casual. They come in a variety of styles such as deck drivers, loafers, and chuckas, and feature waterproof and no-smell leather. That's right, a shoe that you can wear without socks and not run the risk of them stinking. One of the coolest features of Riomar shoes is their bearings, which are customizable and add a personal touch to the shoe. You can get your school colors, initials, or something else that I can't even think of. Besides the personalization, one of the other big benefits of this is you never have to worry about someone running off with your shoes and denying that they're their shoes. You can get these good-looking, leather, smell-proof shoes at RealMarshoes.com, and if you use the promo code TFE, you will get 15% off your purchase. That's RealMarshoes.com and the code TFE for 15% off your purchase. Today's episode is with USGA's Senior Managing Director of Championships, John Bowdenhammer. John joins to talk about his background as a player, U.S. Open setups, and how the USGA is dealing with the coronavirus and their championships. Before we get to John, a quick reminder to sign up for our newsletter. Our team with Will Knights and Garrett Morrison have been cranking this out three days a week with some really interesting stories. You can sign up for it. It's completely free at thefriedag.com. And it'll make your mornings every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Now, without further ado, here's John Bodenhammer. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. I saw some quotes uh, in an interview you did with Brendan Porath last year about um, moving out of the Northwest. What was your, you know, what was your favorite part about living up there? The summers, especially uh, after July 4th through September and into October. Just if you play golf, it's a magnificent part of the world to play golf. Beautiful golf courses, uh, the mountains, uh, the uh, evergreen trees. Uh, it's just beautiful in uh, the summer and early fall. How's the transition been moving over to uh, New Jersey? You know, it's been great. I actually, as a young boy, uh, we would venture back here most summers and spend a few weeks in New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts. I have lots of relatives back here, and my mom was from back here, uh, grew up uh, uh, in Pennsylvania, went to school in Philadelphia, and so uh, I, I knew the area quite well, and uh, it wasn't a big surprise. It was certainly a cultural change. I spent most of my life in uh, in the Pacific Northwest, Washington and Oregon, and went to school in Utah. And um, so it was it was uh, it was a big change. Anytime you're you change careers after 22 years in one job and move to another, you have a lot to learn. And uh, but it has been a magnificent ride. I love the USJ. Always have and. Uh, it's uh, it's a great honor to work with them. You had a very good amateur college career. Obviously, you won a national title at at BYU and played with some some great players. Talk to us a little bit about that experience, and then um, I you tried to play professionally. Um, yes, boy, you've done your homework. Uh, that's many years ago, but 
I grew up playing competitive golf uh, from the time I was 11, 12 years old. Uh, I started the game, and by the time I was 13 and 14, I was playing in everything that I could tee it up in. And as a junior, I had the great fortune of of winning uh, the Washington State Junior, Pacific Northwest Junior, and some other things, and had some good success and was uh, greatly benefited by uh, Coach Carl Tucker at Brigham Young University, who offered me a college golf scholarship to play at BYU in the uh, early 1980s. And boy, we had some great teams, uh, people like uh, Bobby Clampett and Dick Sokol and Rick Fair and, and um, uh, goodness. Keith um, Clearwater. Keith Clearwater. Yeah, he was probably my best friend on the tour or uh, on the team and went on to uh, be rookie of the year on the tour and went a few times. I still stay in touch with Keith and, and, and all the guys. There are so many other names I could share with you that we're on and off the tour, but it was a great experience. The guys were really close knit. There were 14 of us on the team. It was a beautiful place to play. Uh, we traveled a lot. We played in all the big events and we did win a national championship in 1981. It was, uh, it was a great experience. And, you know, coach Tucker was an incredible man. He, uh, he was a great mentor to me. I learned a great deal from him both on and off the golf course, how to treat people, how to, how to dress, how to make first impressions, uh, how to make sure you graduate uh, with a degree. And um, some of the most important lessons in my life uh, came from him, and I'll always be grateful for it. Recently, I've become fascinated with the life and career of Bobby Clampett. What was it like being his teammate? <laughs> well, I played one year with Bobby. Bobby was, uh, you know, it, it, it's, um, it's really a fantastic question because today, a lot, especially a lot of the young kids that play competitively, whether uh, as amateurs now in college or, or on the tour, really, that's a name that maybe a few have heard of. Maybe you associate him more with uh, his announcing career, his broadcast career with CBS. But he was the dominant college player while he was at BYU. And when I say that, he won multiple Fred Haskins awards, which at that time was the Heisman of college golf. He didn't just win events. He won going away. I remember his junior year in California and in Arizona, I think in three or four consecutive weeks, he won by seven to 12 or 15 shots uh, against the best players in college golf. He was just exceptionally dominant. He he, uh, played under the the golfing machine methodology and uh, hit it quite long, but boy, could he putt and he could shoot some low, low numbers and he just had no fear. And uh, it really was, and he remains a great friend, uh, but only played one year with him. And, you know, it was uh, his junior year that we were predicted to win the national championship and didn't. And then he departed. And I think guys like Dick Zokel and Rick Fair and Keith Clearwater and and others uh, really blossomed and uh, we were able to win it which was a great thrill for everybody and uh but bobby was um you know he he just uh he, he everybody thought he was a can't miss and i think uh i think um he just had such a great game and and uh we all still uh, talk about that when we get together that's the cruel thing about golf is that it it can go as quick as it comes and and there are certain guys like Crenshaw and and Seve for example a lot of people say they played their best golf at age 16 to 20 you know and and Clampett was yeah. definitely in that same bucket where you know the he was one of the probably best players in the world at at age 20 you know and uh and it's just an odd game that way 
I'll tell you a couple of things I can share with you. You know, you remember how creative he was uh, hitting hitting golf ball. One of the first hit golf balls off of his knees, and he could hit it 260, 270 yards. And those are the days of persimmon and balata. A lot of the young kids have never experienced that, like like some of us uh, did growing up in that area. But uh, he did a, a lot of amazing things. And you know, I, I can remember one year he was on his way to the Masters. He had been. Uh, I can't remember how he became exempt, but he got an invitation. Might have been because he was low amateur in the U.S. Open, which he led the U.S. Open at Cherry Hills, I believe, mm-hmm. through 27 holes as an amateur, 19 years old. But I remember that it was a year or two later, he was going to the Masters, and my guy was having a conversation with uh, Coach Tucker, and he said, uh, you know, John, Bobby's going to Augusta this week, and he really, really believes he can win. And uh, I believe the first couple of days he had a, a yeah, he was even or one under par and was in, within range and, and didn't, but it was just a mindset. He had, he had absolutely no fear. He believed in himself more than anybody I've, I've ever known. And I, at that time, and, and he did some, uh, some remarkable things. I think more than anything, Bobby was a perfectionist, particularly with his golf swing. He constantly strove to get better. And uh, that might've been something that was his biggest Achilles heel because he, he was never satisfied. All of us would, watch him play and just kind of, you know, wow, it was the wow factor behind it, but he was never satisfied. And um, I remember when he went on tour, Peter Jacobson uh, later told me he thought he had the best swing on tour. All he had to do was let it go to work and, but he kept changing it (laughs) and and tinkering with it. And, but that was Bobby. He was a very bright guy, graduated with a degree in three years from BYU, which which is a great school, but, um, He's a, he's not, he was not only a great player, he was a great human being. He'd be fun to be around, uh, and, and chuckle with him, but, uh, he had a heart of gold, still does. And, uh, he remains a good friend. You mentioned the hitting the ball from his knees. I, I read an art, old article that, that cited he was doing that at the, the U.S. Open at Inverness. <laughs> That's right. In fact, <laughs> in fact, um, I remember that I was not at BYU. I think I was a year before I went to BYU, if I'm not mistaken. I was still playing junior golf, and I remember, I remember reading about that. And they, Bobby, had missed the cut at Inverness Club that year in Toledo, and the USGA. He was a great favorite of the USGA, uh, Phenom, and uh, they asked him to uh, be a playing marker because they had an odd number of players who made the cut. I can't remember who he played with in the very first group out, but. You know, Bobby's score wasn't counting. He wasn't in, in the championship any longer. And so he began to put on an exhibition. He began to tr- try and hit different shots, big uh, big uh, fades or hooks or just different low shots and putting greens, as I, as I recall reading. But then he, he uh, began to hit drives off of his knees and the crowds were mesmerized by it. Many had never seen that. And I mean, drive it straight down the middle, 260, 270 yards from his knees. Nobody could believe it. But I think the powers that be at that time, uh, uh, they were still wearing the blue blazers out there. <laughs> and I'm one of those now. Uh, didn't take too kindly to that. And so uh, on the 10th hole, uh, they uh, asked Bobby to depart. <laughs> and he did. And uh, I think he felt very badly about that. I think he was just trying to be a bit entertaining. And um, I think they felt it was maybe a distraction. But 
he was that way. He he just he was very creative and didn't have any fear. It was uh, fun to be around. That whole U.S. Open had a bunch of stuff. They had the imposter, the great imposter, snuck That's in right. and played the practice round. The Hinkle Tree. It, it was, that Hinkle was tree. yeah, yeah. An incredible. It's kind of an incredible U.S. Open to go back and read about. We had a great U.S. Junior there this year with Preston Summerhead winning. We still love Inverness Club. It's one of America's great clubs. Oh God, that that in that restor restoration renovation work that they recently did is fantastic. Some of those the new holes are are tremendous golf holes out there. They really are. Andrew Green did a magnificent job there. Yep, it's fantastic. We love it. Yeah, it's a, that's a cool place. And if you're not on your game, you're going to have a long day out there. <laughs> that's right. And you're personal estimation how does being a former player help you when you do these setups for championships well i think it does i, I think i have you know I, I never played on tour i did uh, i did play at, at a high level of amateur golf um won a state amateur won a couple state opens played in two u.s amateurs and played in a lot of usj qualifying and um and uh, several ncaa championships and so you know i i understand it to that level i've never played in a tour event i did get to the second stage of tour school qualifying a couple times but never got out on tour but um, i was around a lot of really good players who did get out on tour multiple tour winners uh, johnny miller used to come out and play with us billy casper and i used to pick their brains mike reed is a is a close personal friend played a lot of golf with those guys and and would continuously talk strategy with them about how you know they would they would play and what they would play around with their games uh you know billy castro was probably the greatest wedge player i ever saw and, and what he would think about and how he would set up his tee shot so that he could he really have a wedge in his hand and make a dance around the hole and then of course he was a great putter where johnny miller was maybe the greatest iron player that i've ever seen next to Heath clearwater too um and they would play around that and really hit the ball close to the hole and and uh and really score that way i think being around that and and i was all i've always been one to be uh to be um curious about what the great players uh, or even just good players think about as they strategize around a golf course and was benefited by a lot of that in, in growing up uh and in college and and afterwards and uh, I think going to the USJ and, and even before going to the USJ with the Pacific Northwest and Washington State Golf Associations, I loved uh, course setup the most. I would always be involved in that or with the Pacific Coast Amateur Championship we ran as well at some great golf courses and thinking about how players would approach a hole um, and approach putting green and, and approach shot. And then when I came to the USJ, it was one of the great allures to come to the USJ to be able to work with Mike Davis who uh, in 2006 uh, uh, donned that mantle for us and succeeded Tom Meeks to, to, with course setup. And as, in those days, Mike's uh, graduated rough and some of what he did uh, with Herman's house conditions was, was pretty revolutionary for the, for the USGA and the US Open. And um, coming and beginning to work with him in 2011 was a, was a great joy. And I've learned a lot there as well. And some of our great US Open courses. Mike Davis did a lot of things. And one of the big things was uh, introducing that day-to-day -day variety and setups where all of a sudden it wasn't yeah. just, you know, automatically we're going to put the tee here every single day. And it came with, obviously, there's been mixed feedback from players about it. Yeah. I, I'm curious, how do you guys approach providing that variety without doing too much to get, you know, to push it over the edge. Sure. Uh, well, Mike, you're right. Mike, uh, I think is just really, uh, 
has he's a brilliant thinker as it as it pertains to really um, pushing things hard on a golf course and really developing uh, an ultimate test and you know I think part of what we think of, uh, of the U.S. Open is that it is it is unique to major championships any championship in the world in that we, the way we think about setup it's not just where the team uh, the tees are on the teeing area or the holes are on the putting greens. It's about fairway widths. It's about angles. Uh, it's about weather. It's about firm and fast. And really uh, it's also not just about being able to, to uh, really control your shot making, but it's about the ability to, to control it uh, once it lands on the ground and, and, and it runs out a little bit and, 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 and really premium on driving accuracy and, and I think risk reward, but even above that is the mental side of the game. And I think the ability or the the opportunities to present something to players that might be a little unexpected, uh, you'll find those that uh, will say, "Wow, well, okay, let's see, this is an opportunity. Maybe um, maybe others are going to think this, think about this a little negatively. I'm going to think positively and take advantage of it. Uh, uh, or I don't have this yardage. What do I what do I do? Or I didn't think about this angle." Uh, what am I going to do? We think that enhances the test that the U.S. Open provides. It's not just about length. It's not just about hole locations. It's about um, curving your ball uh, left and right, uh, up and down, and uh, what happens to it when it's on the ground. And also uh, the mental approach, uh, just, you know, after you've made a couple of bogeys, gathering yourself and making a couple pars, maybe not a birdie right away, not shooting at a, at a flag stick uh, or a hole location, uh, but also uh, Maybe when you get that unexpected uh, forward tee, uh, it uh, you manage it properly, and and your emotions are a big part of that. We think that's that's an important part of the test. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think you know the in a lot of golf, what we see it kind of has been reduced sometimes to an execution test, and it's so much more of a game, difficult of a game when it when you have to think and the the element of doubt comes in. I think like one of the great examples of the change tee was Jim Furyk uh US Open years ago when they switched the tee and and they didn't know what the number was and he hit one of the worst shots of of his tournament and it, one of the shots that cost him the championship. It did. I was there. It was uh 2012 uh, at the Olympic Club and Jim was leading. The teeing area was uh, was quite a bit up front. Again, risk reward. I think some of the longer hitters could um uh, you know, if they if they if they hit a, a sweeping hook around the corner, could could knock it on in two, and that's 600 plus yard par five. And you know, really giving out giving players an opportunity to take a little bit of a risk uh, if they wanted to. They didn't have to. Could have laid back a little bit and and maybe knock it on in two and make a birdie late in late in the game and change the outcome of uh, the championship perhaps, or even make an eagle. And uh, I think Jim was trying to hit that shot and just and just didn't. And I'll tell you what, uh, I know Jim Furyk a, uh, a little bit. I've had a numerous conversations with him. He's a past champion of the U.S. Open and really admire his thinking. He is one of the steeliest competitors. Uh, he's a prototype U.S. Open champion. He drives it in the fairway. He never gives up. He's an ultimate grinder. Uh, I've refereed his group numerous times at the British Open. Um, I have great admiration for Jim. That I, I think it was just Jim taking a risk to uh, knock it around the corner and, and unfortunately just didn't execute. It wasn't, wasn't anything more than that, but, but that's, that's why we do what we do. We think 
that with the U.S. Open doing those things, um, it's, it's not an attempt to see players make bogey or double bogey. It's an attempt that when they do succeed and those players that do hit it around the corner and knock it on and make eagle or birdie and do something like that, they've done something very special. They've achieved something that is when, when, they, when they hoist that trophy, they've known they've done something amazing. It's like Tom, Tom Watson says often, you know, my, my dad said, boy, if you can win the National Open, you've really achieved something because you've won it on the toughest test of the year. Uh, I can remember a uh, quote, Jeff Ogilvie, uh, I think it was, was might've been after his win at Wingfoot a couple of years later, uh, he was asked in the, in the media center after his round, he had, how uh, did you have fun shooting your 67 today? And Jeff's a real cerebral guy. And he uh, thought for a minute and he said, I don't know if I would really describe what I did today as being fun. Uh, because it's a grind at the U.S. Open, it's hard, but I've got I've got a great deal of satisfaction out of my round today. I really feel like I earned that great score, and it's uh, it's really gratifying. I think I think that's really what we're trying to create. It's something that when the guys do win, they've done something that is so special. And you talk to those the Curtis Stranges and the Hale Irwins and the Tigers and the Ernie Els, uh, those that win, um, you hear that a lot. You hear that a lot. They they want it hard. They want it fair, and that's what we endeavor to do. It evokes a different. I, you know, I played in a USGA Championship a few years ago, yep. and and just the intensity and the focus that was required. Walking off the golf course after a round, it it was a exhaustion mentally <laughs> that I had never really felt as a golfer. Um, and it it's just a different. It's a hard hard to describe the feeling where. You know, if you lose your focus or lose, you know, your control for a second, it can get turned around so quickly. And that's the thing that makes it so unique is that it's if you make a mistake, you better do your best to if you go on tilt and keep making compounding the mistake. That's where you can derail your whole championship. That's right. And I think the mental part of that is so important because, if you know, and Jack Nicholas used to uh, used to speak about that. He's got some amazing quotes. Um, you know, playing in the afternoon, he'd walk into the locker room and hear guys grousing about a whole location or the height of the rough. And he's told us this, and I think he's been quoted many times in the media saying it. Uh, he'd walk by the guys and he'd say, well, I got him beat. I got him beat. I got him beat. Um, because they, you know, some players just can, can deal with that and some can't. And, and, and we think that's the mark of a great champion, someone that can overcome adversity because you are going to make mistakes. You're going to make bogeys uh, at the U.S. Open. And the, the trick is uh, really the key is not to make to make a few of them, but also not make the big hole because it's really hard to come back from that big hole. Uh, the double or the triple uh, is what you want to avoid. Uh, but it's just about hanging in there. You know, it's like it's like. Um, it's like running a marathon. It's like the decathlon. It's like uh, training to be a Navy SEAL. It's a test that once it's, 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 it's a grind. Uh, it, it must be fair. But when you get to the mountaintop uh, after that climb, you know that you've done something uh, and achieved something uh, unlike anything else. And we take great pride in that. Um, has to be fair. And 
we uh, I think it's our DNA across all of our championships, not just the U.S. Open. Something you alluded to with that Jack Nicholas story is is the emotional aspect that players have when you're you're playing tournament golf, and you know a lot of times you'll you'll say something or you'll think something when you're in the moment, and then you know when you get the opportunity of of thinking back a month later, you might realize that you made a mistake. How do you how do you guys balance feedback knowing that? You know, a lot of times coming from it's it's an emotional response. It it, it is. Uh, you know, we hear well, well, and you know, for a lot of years we we we've heard hear from the players, but I think in today's day and age with social media and and uh, agents and coaches and and just you know players uh, in 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 the interaction that we have with them now, I think uh, one of the best things we've done in a long time is to have hired Jason Gore as our senior director of player relations. Jason's a respected tour player, a seven time winner, and uh, just a tremendous, a guy with tremendous integrity, a great sense of humor, a great ball striker and um, has respect to the guys. And I think they feel they can go to him and share with him candid feedback, but also, you know, candid feedback if they don't like something, but also some great ideas that we have um, that, that have been shared with Jason about, about many topics. And uh, we listen and I, we, you know, we've, we've always listened, uh, but we've never had the avenue uh, to, to either seek that feedback and obtain it and, and, and bring it into golf house. Or really, I think more importantly, we've never had that avenue to explain the why behind some of our decisions. And I think that's left misperception. I think it's left some hard feelings. I think those, there there are a number that we are close to, always have been, Tiger, Jack, uh, Tom Watson, Taylor, when, you know, some of those guys, they know us, but now we're able to stay in touch with with, uh, anybody who's willing to talk. And and Jason's done a great job with that and it's benefited us and will continue to do so. I've heard from the people I know that on tour that Jason, that, you know, he's a great guy to talk to and has given them a a way to find information, you know, to get information. And I think that's the the biggest thing. It's uh, I think a lot of people generally, they complain when they feel like they haven't, aren't being heard or don't have an outlet to complain. And then when you talk back to, when you communicate back, they're the nicest people in the world. Like I see it with what, what I do is, you know, sometimes people have complaints and then when you respond to them and you, you communicate, then they be, turn into the nicest people in the world. Well, that's right. And, and, you know, we're fans of, of the greatest players in the world. We're fans of the greatest amateurs in the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we want to hear from them. We want to share with them. Uh, about our decisions and, and, uh, you know, they all want the best for the game. And, um, you know, that dialogue is really important because uh, we care about them and uh, we want to share with them what we're doing. And, uh, you know, I I think it's an important relationship, not just that uh, on, on, with the tour players, but with the amateurs as well, you know, our amateur championships, every one of them is a major to somebody. And, uh, whether you're a mid-amateur or a senior amateur or a women's mid-amateur or a junior, uh, it's, they're the most important championships you play in each year as an amateur, and, and we want to hear from them. And, and uh, We think a lot about these days the player journey. Uh, that's a strategy that's front and center in my mind and taking on my responsibilities and overseeing all of our championships uh, that Mike Davis asked me to do a few years ago. I, I really take that seriously where – you know, I, uh, Nick Price, who's on our board and our championship committee, former number one player, said something that really fueled my thinking 
a couple of years ago at a championship committee meeting, he said, and you can apply this to any championship, John, it's really important where the guys win their major, win their U.S. Open. It's really important. And that's fueled, uh, it's just so simple, but it's right in front of you, but it fuels our thinking uh, that, you know, where do the players want to win their U.S. Open, their U.S. Women's Open, their U.S. Amateur, uh, their U.S. Junior Amateur, and so on. And so one of the things that we strive to do is go to our nation's greatest golf courses, and we'll continue to do that. We're thinking about that a little bit differently as we go forward, but it's that sort of feedback and guidance. And then you think about the journey, you think about someone like Jordan Spieth winning two U.S. juniors and then going on and almost winning the U.S. amateur Aaron Hills uh, the following year, got to the quarterfinals, played on a Walker Cup team, and then goes on a year later and wins wins the U.S. Open. That's the ultimate player journey. That's what we're trying to create uh, as as we think about these young kids starting out and all the way up through the U.S. Open and in and with amateurs even into the mid and senior ranks. So it's pretty inspiring. Yeah, I, I think that's that's so spot on. And I, you know, always contend with especially like state associations. It's so important to have your big state championships at great venues, because that's what inspires the 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 youngest of the generation playing in them. If they're, you know, in a perfect example is the U.S. junior getting great venues, you know, for U.S. junior helps those juniors become better players when they move up to the USAM and hopefully eventually the US Open it prepares them for you know their future golf uh and in championship golf uh experience it does and uh, i think playing on that grand stage where so much history oftentimes is made uh, uh prior to you stepping there you know the Inverness Club where Preston Summerhays won the junior amateur this year you think about the opens and and the senior opens and the U.S. amateurs that have been there, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a great uh, legacy. And to be on that stage with, with a U.S. open setup with the narrowness of the fairways where you've got to drive the ball in the fairway and the height of the rough where you're penalized much of the time if you don't uh, drive it in the fairway and then you get on the putting green and you have to really think about it. And, and it, it does prepare them uh, for what's coming later in life. And, it's certainly with USJ events, but otherwise, and we think that's important. We think our championships inspire uh, each demographic and each and the future generations, and we take great pride in that. And going to the very best sites is is critical. Narrowing with narrowing of fairways. Um, how do you guys balance where you're still when you narrow fairways, you're still rewarding the accurate player versus the power player? Boy, it's uh, it's a question we talk about. Every day at Golf House, those of us that work on U.S. Open course setup, um, and uh, people like Jeff Hall and and uh, myself and and uh, Ben Kimball and all of our championship directors, Darren Bavard, our agronomist. Uh, you know, every course is different. Uh, Pebble Beach is different than Wingfoot uh, this year, and and will be different uh, than uh, Torrey Pines next year, and the Country Club in 22, and Los Angeles Country Club in 23. They're the weather is different. The grasses are different. The topography is different. So there's no set uh, width of U.S. Open fairway, uh, but it, it really is more um, uh, about what the hole provides and letting it be what it, what the architect intended to be. And I'll give you an example of that. At Pebble Beach last year, we had um, one of our widest fairways uh, in U.S. Open history on number 10. Uh, I think it was 54 yards wide. I'm not mistaken, uh, but the topography on that was, oh, I don't remember what the slope was, but it was, you know, probably uh, eight, 9%. And so 
or seven eight percent, I would imagine that. And firm and fast, uh, it, it wasn't as firm as fast as maybe we could have had it. But um, you know that you, you drive a ball on the left side of that fairway, it's probably running twenty, thirty, forty yards down towards the ocean, and you need that width. Whereas uh, you go to a place uh, like Wingfoot, and you've got a hole. Oh goodness, you could <laughs> you can uh, you can take just about any hole at Wingfoot that you'll see and. And there isn't that topography necessarily, and uh, and there's probably not going to be wind, and or at least much of it, and it's just different, and it's it will be a narrower. We'll, you'll see fairways in the 25, 26, 27 yard range. You know, a hole that's maybe 370 that a guy might be tempted to drive it from a forward tee as opposed to a 500 yard par four. The you know the 500 yard par four needs to be a little bit wider. You need a little bit more room to hit it. It's a little harder to hit where you can take that uh, four or five iron out on that 370 yard par four and still have an eight, a nine iron wedge in. Um, so it's strategic. And then we, you know, I think we try to create angles too. We, we'll, uh, we'll look back at old aerials at, at what an A.W. Tillinghast intended with wing foot. Uh, and uh, Gil Hans, the great restoration he did a few years ago on the West course has allowed us to do that. And, but we really try to take what the architect intended uh, we we tried to, uh, to to go with that and create shot values that he thought created the great test and and uh, the width is part of that. Um, it's uh, we think there should be a premium on driving your ball in the fairway for a U.S. Open uh, and then playing it onto the green from the fairway and being able to control your ball. And the best players can do that. Obviously, par fives have, are quite different than what par fives were even twenty. 20 years ago where, you know, almost everybody in the field is getting home in two if they hit a good drive or close to home in two. There's very rare we come across true three-shot par fives. With that in mind, do you, do you ever envision a a par at a championship venue going below 70? Uh, goodness. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, we've played a U.S. Open at under par 70. I've, uh, I'd have to go back and look. I'm going from memory now, but... Um... Uh, the country club of Philadelphia, I think is a par 69 or was when we played the U S open there. I, mm-hmm. that may not, I believe that's accurate. I have to go back and look, I'm going from memory, but you know, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a fair question. And I think to us, when we think about it, par is really relative. It, it, it's a number and, um, you know, you, you can, it can be a par four or a par five, but it's all about the number that you score on that hole and getting your ball into the hole. I think we look more at what are the shot values uh, from the teeing area into the fairway and where is a good player going to, with, with the way they drive the ball today. And I don't just mean that by length, but how they hit it, how they curve it or how they uh, play it, fade hook and where they're going to drive it. And then what type of shot they have into the putting green. And, you know, sometimes you can have a, 170 yard shot into a putting green, but putting green can be uh, all mounded up and balls can, uh, careen away from the hole just because of the topography on the putting green and so those holes are generally par fives because you're throwing a short shot and you control it you don't want to be hitting a four or five iron into some of those types of putting greens where the ball is going to careen a good shot's going to careen off the green or a good shot won't end up near the hole and, and we, we try to watch those things and not really think about a number and present the golf course so that it is a shot value test, uh, no matter what it might be, depending on the tees we'll use. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that I, I completely agree with the par being just a number. It, it Obviously, I think par is what 
you know, the most of the golf fans equate to difficulty, which is kind of a yeah. unfortunate thing because, you know, I think back to Aaron Hills, it's a par 72 Brooks wins at 16 right. under, but if you change it to par 70, he wins at eight under and probably nobody complains that it's too easy. And, uh, <laughs> you know, likewise with like Pebble beach last year, you know, you watch the six hole and guys are hitting iron, iron into this into, into the green. It's like, is this really a par right. five? You know, if, if somebody makes a, a player makes a five, they definitely walk off the green feeling like they lost a shot to the field. Well, that's a really great example too, Andy. I think that number six at Pebble, you know, a lot of, we, we did hear a lot of that last year where, you know, it's just a long par four. Well, you know, no, it's not. We, you throw a 20, 25 mile an hour wind in, in there and that uh, fairway that runs all the way into the ocean uh, and down and away from you, you might be hitting two or three off that tee, but that's not going to be an easy fairway to hit. And then can assure you that uh, that shot up the hill, if you're not hitting it up the hill from that fairway, just getting it up on top of the hill from the rough was going would have been a really big chore. And that rough up that hill was no picnic. It was uh, in some places eight to 10 inches by design. And, um, you know, yeah, I guess if you play it just right, and we didn't have a whole lot of wind last year, um, it, it played short. But um, but that's okay. It, it uh, it's the way the architect intended it to be played, and uh, that's really where we uh, what we try to embrace. We just wanted to let Pebble Beach be Pebble Beach, and that's maybe the perfect example of a hole that uh, was just intended to be the way that it was. So, with that being, you know, your first opportunity to do do the U.S. Open setup as the man in charge, what were the biggest takeaways from Pebble? Well, I think the biggest takeaway for me was. Um, I grew up playing Pebble Beach. Well, I, I'm from the Pacific Northwest, but in college, we'd, we'd always go to Pebble and play at some point during the year in the Monterey Peninsula. And it was played there a lot, even after college. And uh, it's just such a magnificent place. It's a national treasure. It's, it's iconic. Uh, the players love it. It's just so beautiful. And I think just having the opportunity to to really oversee course setup there this past year was, was really a great honor for me. I, I still, uh, I still uh, pinch myself thinking about it. And, you know, Mike Davis uh, asked me to do that. Uh, that was something that had been in the works for a few years and allowed Mike to really become, really devote his time to be a CEO. We had been talking about that for a few years and to do it and to begin that journey uh, at Pebble was, was amazing. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, Pebble is such a beloved site. You look at the history that's been there all the way back to the U.S. Amateur when, when Bob Jones played and almost won and through the U U.S. Opens that have been there, some of our most iconic with Jack Nicklaus's one iron and Tom Watson's chip in and, and Tom Kite's chip in and Tiger and so on and Graham McDowell. Uh, to do it this year and add Gary Woodland to the mix was just, it was just fantastic. You know, we didn't get the wind. We, we planned this course set up around the wind uh, because you have to. If you don't, then you risk uh, it, the golf course getting away from you because boy, it, when the wind blows there, it can firm up very quickly. And um, but I but I think you know we had a great team going in and uh, we felt good about it. I'll, I'll tell you probably uh, one of the biggest factors to the success we had last year. And you know it's no secret, Andy, we needed a, not just a good U.S. Open, we needed a great U.S. Open. Uh, we had there's look, it's no secret. Um, we had uh, there, we had had some uh, 
challenges in, in a, a couple of the previous years. And, uh, and we needed a good one for a whole bunch of reasons. And, and by every measure we had it. And I think where it all started on the golf course was how amazing those putting greens were in the condition they were in. They were perfect. And I think we, even when the players arrived, they were astounded because they usually are there in February and it's difficult to grow grass on the Monterey Peninsula in February. It's soft, it's bumpy, uh, but they still, it's, it's wonderful in February, but in June, I don't think they'd ever seen green Polanya greens at Pebble beach. Like they were, they were uh, literally perfect. And it's a testament to Chris Dahlhammer, their, their former superintendent who, who just departed to go to Monterey Peninsula country club. Uh, kudos to Chris. He's, he's a great friend. And, you think about those little tiny putting greens are about as big as your kitchen table, most of them, and get about 70,000 rounds a year for him to have them in the condition they were in. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. And it just allowed the guys to uh, really make a lot of putts. And uh, I think a number of the players told us, look, it was, it was a perfect setup. If you had had some wind, um, you know, the scores would have been a little bit lower, but we're grateful that you just let it be what it was what it was to be without trying to force it. And, and we did, we just, we, we had a plan going in and we had a strategy and uh, we didn't get any win, but we stuck with our plan. We didn't, uh, we didn't try to force it for a score. And if, you know, a lot of people think we, we target par, we don't, uh, we don't have a target score. We have a golf course setup. And uh, I think if there's uh, no better, there's no better proof than what we did last year because it wasn't a target score. Had there been, we'd have forced it and, and tried to get to a score, but what you saw Gary Woodland do and Brooks Kepka and Justin Rose, it was fun to watch. Yeah, I think that's the the thing. I, I talk with Jeff Ogilvy regularly on on the podcast, and and he always says stresses look at the leaderboard, don't look at the scores on the leaderboard. And I think exactly. anybody that was out at Pebble on Sunday, I mean, the energy, especially on that front nine, when you know the two best players in the field. Clearly, we're we're throwing haymakers at each other with Brooks and and Gary Woodland off the bat. Those birdies, those first six holes, it was you know an energy out on the golf course that you know, that I you know had never really experienced before. And and it was you know the the two players that were most worthy of the the championship clearly separated themselves on that final day. They did, and you nailed it. You could see it right off right off the get go. It was there to go get. And, uh, and Brooks and Gary went out and got it as did a few others, you know, as I recall, Adam Scott got up to a really hot start and there were a few others, but uh, by that time, uh, Gary and Brooks were, were kind of where they were and Justin Rose was hanging in there. And, um, you know, it, it, it was, it, it was really a, a great testament to Pebble beach. Uh, that place is so special. And, and, uh, you know, they, they, they were two prize fighters duking it out and, and, you know, it, it was, uh, and then, you know, you, you turn the corner through seven and then you got to play eight, nine, 10, uh, 11, 12, even 13 and 14, one of the tougher par fives in the world. You know, that it, it's, it's almost two different golf courses. And it was, um, it was a bit nerve wracking to watch all those birdies early on. I'll be honest with you. Um, thinking about what could it could be, but boy, they, they, when they turned the corner to go into eight, uh, it, the golf course took care of itself and we knew it would even without wind and, and to have, uh, what happened there was, um, was really gratifying. And, uh, so that's one in a row. We're going to have, yeah. uh, we're going to have a bunch more coming, uh, coming at us again with Wingfoot this year. We're excited. So changing gears to this year, obviously it's been a really tough time for the entire world and, and the, the pandemic's made, 
hosting any type of event extraordinarily difficult, especially with the conflicting, you know, there's different information that comes out every day. Uh, bring us into the just the decision-making process and how difficult it was for you guys to to come up with your your solution that we have now. We obviously have the rescheduled events. We have the USAM, the US Women's AM, uh, the US Open, and the US Women's Open left, and and uh, the fall dates and no qualifying. Yeah, yeah, it's been quite a journey. It's been quite a year. Uh, it's uh, you know, it's it's something that none of us ever anticipated. You can't plan for, and so uh, very difficult journey. Uh, we feel we feel uh, a lot of emotions right now with where we are in the year. We're disappointed, uh, you know. I keep sitting here and saying that we've canceled ten championships is is surreal. I, 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 I it's like a dream, and I'm waiting to wake up. But like we all are at the USJ. It's heartbreaking, truly agonizing, and heartbreaking. Um, but, you know, as we went into this and we saw that it was coming at us uh, starting back in March and thinking about our championships that were starting the next month with, with the women's four ball championship and, and the men's four ball a few weeks later, we really, uh, as we began to understand what the pandemic was, was beginning to be, we really put a couple of oh, guiding stars in front of us. One, first and foremost, as you as everybody would imagine, would be uh, health and safety of everyone involved with with a USJ championship or anything that the USJ does. Our agronomists, uh, our our, uh, our staff who conducts handicap seminars, or allied golf associations around the country. Health and safety had to be number one, and, and um, for all kinds of reasons, and and all kind and in all kinds of scenarios. The second part of that was we really went into the spring and saying, okay, here's, here's what we're up against, but let's, let's give it every opportunity to crown as many champions of our 14 championships as we can while really having health and safety as a paramount concern. And it was that, that led us down the road that we've come and uh, you know, in, in, and with qualifying that might've, you know, that was just such a difficult decision because we take great pride um, in offering the platform that is qualifying to more than 40,000 players a year that enter USJ championships at every level, opens and amateurs, men, women, juniors, seniors, mid-amateurs. Take great pride in that and our championships being inspiring because people can follow their dreams. And every USJ championship is a major to somebody. And to follow your dreams through that platform through the ultimate meritocracy in golf, you earn your way into our championships. And we take great pride in that. And to not be able to do that this year is truly heartbreaking. I, I cannot stress that enough. And, but, I, but I think we also, in looking at it uh, in, across the spectrum um, and, and, and you know our rationale, I'm happy to talk about, but we do believe this is an unusual year. This will be a one-off. We're already beginning to plan for qualifying full force next year, and um, so with the health and safety concerns, that, that's that's why we did what we did at a, at a macro level. But at the same time, I think what we've done uh, with the four championships and uh, with fully exempt fields gives us really our best chance for success this year in 2020. And I think, as I think about it, uh, I can just envision getting to the end of December and looking back at crowning four 
great champions in an amazingly challenged year. I'm looking forward to to uh, celebrating those four great champions and then moving on to 21 and getting back to crowning 14. Um, but but you know I, I would say this. I think a couple of things really played a huge part in our decisions and um, this notion of testing. We are going to test players and um, other essential attendees and workers. Uh, those that would volunteer or food and beverage staff uh, or all of those that would work at a championship this year, the four that we have, we feel we have to, if the players are going to play, we want them safe. And uh, that was a big part of our decision. You've seen the PGA tour announce that they're going to test uh, beginning here in mid June, if they're able to play and we sure hope they'll be able to, uh, they'll test and they'll test uh, un- until there's a need not to when we have a vaccine or a wonder drug, but ways away from that. And so to be able to do that for each championship proper um, and considering the demographics in, in two senior amateurs, and two mid amateurs and, and a senior open and a senior women's open, we just felt that this is our best way forward. And, and then you also think about qualifying and uh, just the, you know, the, the 10,000 that enter a U.S. open in most years or the 2000 in a women's open. And, and then across the amateur championships, there's about 650 qualifying sites throughout the spring and summer and fall that allied golf associations arrange and run for us. 109 of those are just for U.S. Open local qualifying. So you think about clubs that close down in March and April, maybe beginning to open up in May, and the challenges both financially that they're having now generating revenue and trying to reschedule all of that into later in the summer or the fall when everything else is trying to be rescheduled state amateurs and other major championships um and uh for that and other reasons uh you know the host venues our agas those challenges just the ability to um to put your put your hand in a water cooler and pull out a water bottle is different this year you know, at qualifying, how are we going to evacuate players if we have inclement weather? We're not going to pile them into vans. That's a challenge. Some of the littlest things that we take for granted normally are major challenges this year, not even including testing. And we just felt that we needed to do this in a safe way and still crown champions. And uh, we we weighed the risk versus the reward. And we feel this is our best way forward. Yeah. It, it, I mean, we I've run some events and 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 we're the same thing. It's, it's kind of, you, there's so many little things that can happen that you have to have some sort of a, a, a solution for. And there's so, it's such a big challenge. Uh, I'm curious with the, obviously so much of the openness of these championships is, is the ethos of these championships. And I, how are you guys, what are some of your strategies that you are going to take to capture that same feel in the U S open where we get those underdogs, those, those local qualifiers and and bring those to the forefront and get at least you know some of that feel into the 144 person feel. Thank you for that question. It's it's a good one. It's one we've been really uh, really pushing on for the last several weeks. And and you know please know our intention going into Crown Every Champion we were we were going to do it with qualifying until just a few weeks ago when we really dug into and spoke to many of our allied golf associations and the challenges were just too great and. The risk versus reward was just too great. But what we'll do this year with the four championships, the opens and the amateurs, the two opens and the two amateurs, uh, I think we, our operating principle is, is this. 
we will endeavor to create fields through exemptions that will, uh, when you when you look at them and who is participating, the representation that is there will look as close as we can make it look as to what qualifying would produce in a U.S. Open or a U.S. Women's Open or a U.S. Amateur or a U.S. Women's Amateur. And what I mean by that is we're digging into the data now as to the past several uh, Opens, U.S. Open, U.S. Women's Open, and and looking at, at the makeup of those fields. And we will endeavor to expand our exemption categories uh, to uh, really uh, do our best to reflect the representation from the PGA Tour, the European Tour, the other worldwide tours, even amateurs. You know, Andy, you look at, our, at the U.S. Open over the last five years, just the U.S. Open, we have a, uh, uh, there are uh, the average number of amateurs that play have played in the U.S. Open over the last five years is 15.2. And most of them come through qualifying. We usually have five or six fully exempt amateurs, but the rest earn their way in through qualifying. Well, we've looked at that, and I think you'll see a number very close to 15 as the number of amateurs that will be in the U.S. Open. Probably a little less than that because we've got, we don't have a full field. We're at 144 instead of 156. But that's the way we're looking at it. And then across the U.S. Amateur and the U.S. Women's Amateur, we look at it not from a tour standpoint, but from a demographic standpoint. What I mean by that is we'll look at our exemptions and expand them. And uh, how many juniors have played over the last several years in the U.S. Amateur or U.S. Women's Amateur? How many college players have made up the field? How many mid-amateurs? How many senior amateurs? And, and we're looking at that, and in, in both in the Opens, we'll use the official World Golf Ranking and the Rolex Women's Ranking and uh, the World Amateur Golf Ranking for, for the amateurs. But we're, we're going we're gonna to start and look at ways that we can – those fields can be reminiscent of what qualifying produces. I can tell you this. There'll be strong fields, and, um, you know, uh, it won't be perfect. You know, it, 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 uh, it won't provide that platform where people can follow their dreams. But I think you'll also see some unique opportunities where people can still earn their way in. And I, I use the word earn uh, as a key way to say it. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, we'll have more on that in a couple of weeks. Oh, man. But a cliffhanger. Qualifying is <laughs> not perfect either. Sometimes the best players, not all of them get in because yeah. they, didn't, they miss qualifying. So I think that's important. But uh, about two, two and a half, maybe three weeks, we'll, we'll speak to what that'll look like. Will you take into account, say, geographics? Like we t- typically get X number about this percentage of the you know across the country so you've got amateurs obviously with the way qualifying works you kind of get a mixture pot of the entire country or entire world really for these would w- did you look at that also i don't know that we'll look at uh geography uh it won't be that way it'll be more of what players have earned from the standpoint of uh, maybe what they've done uh, in a previous event or where they sit on a ranking, uh, you know, official world golf ranking, Rolex ranking or world amateur golf ranking. Mm-hmm. But really, you know, maybe maybe what they've done in a prior USJ championship uh, and really earn something special, uh, you know, by, by getting across a certain bar uh, or a certain place in the rankings. I don't think it'll be geographic because we want it to be as merit-based as possible. And as I said, uh, thinking about, it, I'm not sure today. I honestly can't tell you on uh, 
you know, in the third week of May, exactly what that's going to look like as far as earning your way in. But but we're thinking a lot about that and uh, maybe uh, maybe certainly not as many opportunities as we'd normally provide through qualifying. But if we can create some opportunity there, we want to do it. But it, it, again, meritocracy is important. And, and we're thinking about that more than we would something like geography. Yeah, I think that I mean, I think that's cool with the combination of, of ranking and what they've done in prior USGA championships is, is a neat way to do it because it, it, it you know, brings those players back and, and there's a essence of you've earned it one way or the other, whether it be qualifying, but also, you know, in this situation, you don't get the opportunity to earn it via qualifying. So it's based off of what you've done before. You know, something else that, that is really important, I think, to mention, too, with it, all, all that we do, uh, and we, we do a lot for the game. I think you know that. A lot of people know that. But we think about the U.S. Open and, and, and uh, moving the U.S. Open into September. It's crucial to what we do and, and helping us fulfill our mission. To pay. It really uh, is, is what makes everything else possible, uh, what the U.S. Open generates. It's not the only thing, but... Um, you know, the U.S. Open fuels things like uh, the $10 million a year we invest in the U.S. Women's Open, uh, the $25 million in running our additional Opens and amateur championships, you know, all other 13 championships. Um, you know, we invest, uh, I think it's more than $25 million um, to grow the game. Things like uh, uh, LPGA, USA Girls Golf, the first tee, drive, chip, and putt. 200 plus thousand kids will participate in that as we go forward. Our PGA Boat Ride Internship Program in all 50 states, uh, 150 men and women every year that enter the game as administrators that way. Three million have USJ handicap indexes. I don't think there's a blade of grass on any golf course in the United States that hasn't been touched by our green section and our agronomists and the money that we pour into that to make the game better for everybody. We're proud of that. Our championships are inspirational, but it all starts with the U.S. Open and I think that's an important message uh, in, in what it means for the game across all these fronts and, and not just our championships. And, you know, I'm just as proud of that as, as anything that I do uh, uh, within the championship realm. And I think all of us at the USGA are, and it means a lot for the game. Yeah. I, I think that's the thing that people don't realize is how far, how much, uh, impact these championships have on the entire game of golf. John, I, I really appreciate the time and um, look forward to talking to you again and uh, hopefully closer to the championships. And, you know, we're, I think everybody's excited for, uh, for the USGA's uh, big four championships that are coming this, uh, this late summer and fall. Well, I appreciate you uh, having me on. It's, uh, it, it would love to do it anytime. And even more so, I would love to see you and shake your hand at a USJ championship in the near future again. 